again. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to church. It's good to see you all here. Um, quite a change this week. We've been following Mark's gospel over the last few weeks, and maybe the last few months. We're well into, into Mark, and now we've uh, hopped on over to, to John's gospel. Uh, so let's pray as we uh, come to today's sermon. Uh, Lord, we do thank you uh, for your word. Thank you that it is a light unto our feet. Your word brings life, life to the world, life to us. Uh, Lord, help us to have uh, open hearts and minds uh, to you, uh, to your word and to your Holy Spirit who is here and with us today. Lord, draw us closer to you, uh, speak into our hearts, minister deeply to us in our points of need. Uh, draw us nearer to you and mould and shape us more into your likeness and image. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, as I mentioned, this week we've jumped from Mark's Gospel and Jesus teaching his disciples on the Mount of Olives uh, to John's Gospel and this somewhat uh, intimate yet conflict-laden encounter between Jesus and Pontius Pilate in the palace uh, with the baying crowds uh, outside. And in some ways it feels, uh, to use a science fiction illustration uh, from, from Doctor Who, it feels like we've jumped into a time machine like the TARDIS, we've closed the door, pressed the button, and we've shot fast forward uh, in time, and then we've come through the doors, we've stumbled out in the midst of uh, uh, interplanetary conflict. Uh, that's what it feels like, uh, leaving, departing from last week. Well, the exchange between Jesus and Pilate isn't quite intergalactic, but it is an encounter between two focal points, Jesus and his kingdom that isn't of this world, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, versus Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, representing the power of Rome and the prince of this world, Satan, who sits behind Rome. And we get this picture uh, when we scan the wider biblical narrative in Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation 13 in particular. So while uh, the interaction and this conflict that we're looking at today is, is localised, and we're just getting a little snapshot of it today, it's also the focal point for this broader cosmic battle between God and the forces of evil that are set against God and against God's purposes. While it is a jump across uh, Gospels and a short fast-forward in time, there's also a little bit of commonality here between Jesus' teaching last week and the outworking of Jesus' arrest and trial this week. So last week, you'll recall, amid all the apocalyptic imagery of Jesus' prophecy over the destruction of the temple, there were some clear instructions that followers of Jesus must be on their guard must be on their guard, ready for the coming persecutions. Jesus warns that they will be handed over to the local authorities, to the synagogues, to the governors, to the kings. Why? On account of them knowing and loving Jesus, on his account. But rather than seeing this as a, as a negative, uh, Jesus sees this as an opportunity to witness to these governing authorities and a way of furthering the gospel of God. And so Jesus encourages them that when this happens, uh, that they shouldn't worry. I'd be worried. Uh, but Jesus is saying that they shouldn't worry. 
but to say the words that will be given to them by the Holy Spirit. Don't worry what you are to say, but be open to the Holy Spirit, who will give you the words that you are to say. So Jesus cultivating an openness to God in his disciples in all situations, uh, even difficult situations like uh, being arrested and handed over to the authorities. So this encouragement not to worry and to speak the words that God is giving them by the Spirit upon arrest is brought into sharp uh, focus this week as we land smack bang in the middle of Jesus' own arrest and trial. So Jesus is going to model uh, what he's been teaching uh, his followers uh, last week in Mark's Gospel, chapter 13. So as Jesus encouraged his disciples to not worry, we see this non-anxious presence on display, perfectly embodied in Jesus, as he is not only questioned under arrest, but questioned also following his torture, where he continues to display the same level of calmness as before. And I think, I think I know what you might be thinking. You might be thinking, well, you know, Jesus can be calm in that kind of situation because, he, because he's God. Because he's God, he can do it. And that is true. But I don't want to kind of leave the answer or the conclusion um, as, you know, as that, just by saying, well, he's God, so he can do it. Because while fully God, Jesus is also fully human and experiencing in the flesh all that is being done to him as awful as that is. But as God, not of what, none of what is happening to Jesus is a surprise to him. Jesus knows beforehand all that is about to happen, that he is about to depart from the disciples by experiencing persecution before his vindication in his glorious resurrection and ascension. And this foreknowledge of what is going to happen is a strong theme as we approach this narrative of Jesus' arrest and trial today. And so we see this quite strongly in John chapter 16. Jesus says quite openly to the disciples that he is going away from them. But now I am going to him who sent me. It is to your advantage that I go away. A little while, you will no longer see me. You will weep and mourn. You will have pain. But your pain will turn to joy. So Jesus knows what is going to happen to him. And he's ministering to his disciples here who will be sad and will be riddled with pain and will face their own persecutions themselves without Jesus physically present to them as he has been for the last three years or so. But he's encouraging them that their pain will turn to joy. It will turn to joy. So Jesus knows that this is the time, not only for his arrest, his trial and death, which will bring great sadness and pain to the disciples, he knows that this is a time for God to be glorified and for the salvation of the world to come in Christ's victory over the grave in his conquering of sin and death 
once and for all. As Jesus prayed for his disciples before his arrest, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. So he knows this experience of suffering and death will be like a two-sided coin. Sadness and pain on one side, but temporary. Love, glory and victory on the other side, which is eternal, which is permanent. So Jesus is calm because he knows what is going to happen. But I think his calmness also stems from Jesus having all authority uh, in this situation and indeed uh, over the world. Authority over those who have planned and plotted to kill him, even authority over the governor, Pontius Pilate himself, who stands before him as the one in charge, ready to hand down a verdict from his judgment seat. And we see this as we return to Jesus' prayer. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all who you have given him. So Jesus is the one who is truly in charge. Jesus is the one who has authority over all people to give eternal life to all who call on his name. And this brings me back to the point I was making at the beginning of this, the cosmic nature of this battle or this clash. Now, this is not a battle between equals here. Now, that might seem like an obvious point to say, and I don't mean that Pontius Pilate and Rome is stronger and Jesus is standing there by himself, bruised and battered, is weaker. To all intents and purposes, it might look that way to all the observers of this scene. Jesus is the one on trial. Pontius Pilate is the one standing there about to hand down his verdict from his grand palace with all his guards around him there in front of the judgment seat. But as this narrative unfolds, as we can see from the wider biblical narrative, the balance is tipped well well and truly in God's favour, whose love and whose victory will win out in the end. But let's start with our immediate reading first. And the theme of our passage today is one of identity, Jesus' identity. Who is this man who's been brought before Pilate? This is the main thrust of the passage today. Who is Jesus? What are his kingly credentials? Who is in charge? Who is the most powerful one? Is he a king? And if so, does his kingship represent a threat to the Roman emperor, a threat to Rome? Jesus stands on trial, but he's not cowed or submissive to Pilate, as would be the case for anyone else standing trial, for you or I. Even after Jesus has been flogged and with a crown of thorns placed on his head, and after he had been mocked 
and punched. It is here that a bruised and bloodied Jesus chooses to reveal his power over Pontius Pilate. We see this in John 19. Pilate says, Do you not know that I have power to release you and power to crucify you? That's the power that he has. He doesn't yet know who is standing in front of him, who has a greater power. Jesus answered him, You would have no power over me unless it had been given you from where? From above. You would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Jesus has already said that his kingdom is not of this world. It's from another place. And here, Jesus indicates that the power given to Pontius Pilate doesn't come from Rome, as he would think, as he would expect. It comes from another place. It's actually given to him by God, by the bruised and bloodied man standing right there in front of him. He's the one who is in charge. He has all authority and he gives his power to others to govern, to rule, to lead. Pontius Pilate has received what authority he has from Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And scanning the wider biblical narrative reveals Jesus to be the eternal Logos, the eternal Word of God, through whom, by whom, and for whom all things were made. We see this in a number of places. Genesis 1, John 1, Colossians 1, verse 16. For in him, in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. We're not sure how much of that Pontius Pilate finally grasps, but there's some kind of a penny drop for him. And from that moment on, he tries to release Jesus, but as we know, was unsuccessful. So the calmness of Jesus in a situation of immense vulnerability and while under intense scrutiny and torture is one of security in the Father's love for him and because of his knowing what is about to happen, that he is going back to the Father in victory over the schemes of evil men and indeed victory over death itself. Jesus knows what is about to happen. It's quite a witness, isn't it? But then this witness of Jesus as to his own identity, that he is from the kingdom of heaven, is then invited on the part of Jesus' followers. And we saw this in the passage last week. So Jesus' followers are to witness, are to stand out, by living a different way to the world around them, 
by living Jesus' way, by living according to the way of holiness. So Jesus describes that followers in his kingdom show their allegiance to Jesus by refusing to fight to prevent Jesus' arrest, as would be the norm uh, for followers of any other earthly king. Uh, as you can imagine, if it was an earthly king who has been uh, taken by the uh, opposite side, the followers of that king, the people of that same kind, will be trying all that they can to prevent that capture and arrest. But not so with Jesus and his followers, because this king is not from any worldly kingdom, because the kingdom of God is not of this world. Jesus' kingdom is a reign and not a realm. You see the difference there. A reign is Jesus being uh, in charge, having all authority over the world, the cosmos, everything in it. Uh, a realm is defined by place and borders and protecting those borders. So the kingdom of God is a reign where Jesus is in charge. It's not a realm with clearly defined borders that need protecting or defending. So it's from another place. It's not from this world. The kingdom of God is not of this world. So Jesus is king over all. And through his love for all, he is seeking the salvation and obedience of all who will receive his kingship over their lives to belong to Jesus, to the truth, by listening to and obeying his voice. And this global and eternal scope uh, is picked up in a number of places uh, in the Bible, but I'm just going to read from Isaiah chapter 9, 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. There will be no end. As mighty as the Roman Empire was, east and west, it came to an end. As mighty as all the world's nations and empires have been. They have come, they have ruled, and they have come to an end. Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, which is not from this world, which is from another place, will never end. It is eternal. And Jesus invites all people to come to know him and share in his eternal kingdom. Is that the worldview and perspective that you have? I hope so, because it can encourage and give us so much hope, especially in our day and age, with a global pandemic where there is so much worry and confusion about what will happen. We belong by grace through faith 
to an eternal kingdom that will never end. Friends, that is wonderful news. That is news that the world needs to hear. And so from this passage, Isaiah chapter 9, this is where we move from our present Easter theme to our Advent theme, uh, and in keeping with the first Sunday of Advent next Sunday. This coming king, he will be born into a violent uh, world who will experience vulnerability, will be the one who possesses all authority. He will be the worthy recipient of several titles, including Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His reign and his rule will never end. And his followers will witness, they will stand out by following the way of their king, by exhibiting the same love that God has for people, by loving our neighbours, loving our enemies even, in a lifelong practice and habit of forgiving people and refusing to defend or attack or retaliate when injured or threatened. Friends, this is what freedom in Christ looks like. This freedom in Christ will revolutionise relationships as we know them and will bring healing and reconciliation to people separated by enmity and strife. The way of Jesus is an open invitation and church is an open community to all people to come to hear the good news of God. People from different ends of the political spectrum people of different races and from different tribes and cultures and and countries, from these ends and more, all were, all are, all will be invited to follow a new way, the way of Jesus Christ, the way of faithfulness to the one true God who has sent Jesus to draw all people to himself because of his great love shown for them on a Roman cross. Friends, our reading today is but a little, a little window, a little snapshot of this journey of long-suffering love that God has shown us in Christ Jesus towards sinful humanity, towards us as once enemies of God. And here, God incarnate, full of grace and truth, is standing, bloodied and bruised, face to face with Pontius Pilate, and showing him that a world from another place has dawned. A world from another place has dawned and is about to shine its light on all who will receive its love and its mercy. Amen.